works in progress. And that's exactly what we are. And we come to you needy, dependent, um, looking for nourishment that nothing in this world can give us. Nothing in this world can satisfy us like you. So we ask um, that you would, as, a, as we look at your word, you would um, supernaturally um, accomplish your purposes in each one of us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What gives you joy? Where do you find joy? We're getting uh, ready to send our oldest child off to, to college. Graham will be graduating from Dover High School this year. Still can't believe it. Um, I know it sounds very cliche, but it's true. A, a big part of me feels like it was just yesterday when we heard his first cry. Um, th- those of you who've had the privilege of, of having a, a, a baby of your own know what I'm talking about. Know the utter elation of that experience. I remember sitting in our, in our room the next day. We had him at Portsmouth Hospital. <clears throat> I was kind of numb from the lack of sleep uh, the night before. But I just remember looking at him, and I, don't know, I remember looking at the cars on the window, driving by on uh, I-95 and thinking, man, this, this is an ordinary day for, for them. Just going to work, um, picking up some groceries, getting an oil change, going home. But for us, huh, uh, it was the, the top one of the best days of my life, one of the most joyous days of my life. I, I, you know, it, was the, it was the same thing when, when Greta was born, three, three years later. I held each of them in my arms and I looked at them and I said, this is, this is my son, this is my daughter. Pure, unadulterated joy. I know many of you can relate to this. Many of you have experienced the, the, the same kind of joyous feeling yourselves. But, it, but a, a part of me cringed when I thought of sharing that experience. It's because I know many of you long to experience this joy yourself, but haven't yet. And you wonder if you ever will. Or you've experienced some kind of grief of one form or another, uh, that, that hangs as a cloud over your otherwise joyful experience. And I, I, I know, literally, some of your stories. I've wept with you. So hearing about this joyful experience of mine is just painful. It's a reminder of, of your grief. It's a reminder of your unrealized joy. What gives you joy? What gives you joy? Is joy based on good experiences, good, good circumstances? Is, is joy the, the absence of suffering? Or is it deeper than that? Those, those questions are, are what we're going to look at today. This is the third message in our series, Walking Through the uh, the letter of Colossians, again, 
Colossians were, were people Paul had, uh, had never met before. But he'd heard of their faith and he'd heard of their growth as disciples and begins this, begins this letter by telling them how thankful he is for them, how thankful he is that God constantly, um, continuously um, is growing them and that he prays for their devotion to Jesus Christ as king and that this same Jesus Christ would be the song of their hearts. And then he inserts the lyrics to a favorite hymn, song, uh, hymn or praise song in that day, a song that declares who Jesus is, all that he's done, all that he's doing now. And it's to Jesus and his people that Paul has become a minister, a servant. Well, let's look now at this next portion of the letter where Paul is going to unpack for them where he finds so much joy. And how we can too. So if you have a Bible with you, and if you'd like to follow along, I am looking at Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 24, through chapter 2, verses five, verse 5. Okay? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of, his, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I, am present, uh, though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith. The word of the Lord. Well, notice what, what is present in both the first phrase and the last phrase of this passage. Both share something in common. Rejoicing. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's the first verse that we looked at. Last verse. Rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul's joy, his, his gladness of heart, his delight serves as, as bookends that hold this whole passage together. In between these bookends of, of rejoicing, there are three truths Paul had a firm grasp on. And these three truths 
serve as the foundation, the, the reason for his joy. But before we get into that, into those reasons for joy, I want to answer this nagging question that should be on your minds. Um, after I read that first verse. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Hmm. What, what's that mean? I mean, he's just in, included this song talking about the supremacy of Christ and, and how complete we are in him. How can there be anything lacking in the sufferings of Christ? How can there be anything insufficient in the cross? Sounds very much the opposite of all that Paul talks about everywhere, right? And it is. Here's, here's what he means. Number one, if suffering was true for Christ, it's true for his people too. If suffering is true for Christ, it's true for his people also. Jesus said, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He said in another place, greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. This is what he means when he writes in Romans 8, 16, and 17. He says, the, the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering was true for, of Christ for his people also. Number two, my, my second response to uh, understanding um, this, this phrase, lacking uh, in, in the afflictions, is suffering is evidence that we really are a part of God's people. Part of this is informed by how we understand where we're at in redemptive history. Paul knows as a result of the cross and the resurrection and our coming to genuine faith in Jesus, we are new creations, right? The old has gone, the new has come, but we're all works in progress, every one of us. Until Jesus returns or takes us home, we suffer with him. We suffer for our faith. N.T. Wright writes, all Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another, if not outwardly, then inwardly, through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibilities for a family or a church, the constant doubts and uncertainties which accompany the obedience of faith. All of these, properly understood, are things to rejoice in, not casually, flippantly, or superficially, but because they are signs that the present age is passing away and the people of Jesus, the Messiah, the children of the new age, um, 
I'm sorry, <laughs> that the people of Jesus, the Messiah, are the people, are the children of the new age, and, and that the birth pangs of the new age are being worked out in them. That's a pretty low paragraph. But it's so rich, and it's so right on. That's what Paul means when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for, for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Until Christ returns, we suffer. We suffer in a variety of ways, both external and internal, for the sake of others. And that suffering is evidence that we are part of the new creation. That is reason to have infinite, unending joy. So now back to the bulk of the passage, which all relates to this first idea. Three truths, three reasons that Paul had a firm grasp on his joy. Number one, Paul's joy is rooted in who he belongs to. Paul's joy is rooted in who he belongs to. Verse 25, speaking of the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The, the word for minister here has very different connotations than we tend to associate with it. Um, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your, the same word, diakonos. Diakonos, servant. Uh, the first must be last. The disciples had a hard time getting this. I mean, we all do. We want to be master, not servant. We want to be first, not last. So the night before he, he'd go to the cross, Jesus showed them in no uncertain terms what he meant. He took off his clothes. He bent down. He washed their filthy grubby, dirty feet. The master of all became the servant of all, diakonos, minister. The upside-down values of the kingdom, very opposite of what we're accustomed to. Paul, Paul got this. If it's true for Christ, it's true for his people. So Paul understood this, this identity, and his identity was a servant of Christ and his people. A servant of God, a servant of God's people, according to the stewardship uh, from God. When you are a steward of something, that means you're, you're merely a manager of what's been entrusted to your care. For, for example, we, we practice the, the discipline of, of giving here on Sundays, not because God needs it, not because the church necessarily needs it, no, but to remind ourselves in a very painful way, very sacrificial way, that we are not the owners of our stuff. God is. We're, we're merely managers of it, whether it's our time, our money, our talents, our relationships, our, you name it. It all belongs to God. That's what, that's what Paul means when he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship 
from God. Could have had a very unhealthy sense of ownership. Lots of, lots of churches have been damaged by a dysfunctional pastor who thinks he owns the place. Lots of families are led by parents who have a very unhealthy, dysfunctional sense of ownership in that they think they own the family. They own the kids. Lots of companies are led by CEOs with unhealthy, dysfunctional senses of ownership. Paul didn't have that. He had a firm grasp on the fact that God, in his sovereignty, chose him to serve his church in this particular way to manage what had been entrusted to his care. And this all contributed to Paul's joy. Maybe you haven't been called to serve as a minister as Paul was. I mean, 99% of the church isn't a pastor. God has gifted and outfitted his church in a myriad of ways and gifts. Has he called you as a servant of others according to his stewardship? Yes, absolutely. Whether it's the gift of helps or mercy or whatever, you are a servant by virtue of the fact that he has called you into his family. There, there's something very freeing, very joyful when you realize that it all belongs to God. It's not that it doesn't involve work. It does, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But at the end of the day, understanding you belong to the one who has, you belong to the one who's conquered death. You belong to the one who has washed you clean. You belong to the one who has, has adopted you into his family. <laughs> Incredible joy. So that's the first, that's the first reason Paul's joy is rooted in who he belongs to. Number two, <clears throat> Paul's joy is rooted in God's goal for them. It's rooted in God's goal for them. And what is that? Look at verse 27 and 28 again. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here we go, purpose clause. That we may one mature in Christ. That's, that is God's end game with you. That's God's end game with all of us. Our maturity in Christ. I know that sounds very basic, very fundamental, but when's the last time you thought of this as the goal, as God's end game? The, the opposite of maturity was <laughs> the, the church in Corinth, actually. The, the Corinthians were still living as though um, the, the cross and the resurrection hadn't happened. Living as though the, the world was all there was. So they live for materialism, they live for entertainment, they live for social status, they live for um, climbing the ladder of, uh, of their little meritocracy. So you've got to love how candid and honest Paul was with them. Um, 1 Corinthians 
3, verses 1 through 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Spiritual babies. Paul says something very similar to what he says um, to the Colossians in Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Well, how does that happen? Two primary ways. Number one, by learning and meditating on God's word. Learning and meditating on God's word. Verse, verses 25 and 26, Paul's main task as minister was to make the, the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God's word isn't mainly a book of do's and don'ts. It, it isn't mainly an, an instruction manual for how to live your best life now. No, no, no. It, it's mainly a book about what God has done and seeing our lives in the light of that. Jesus, Jesus calls God's word food for our souls. This is why we gather like this. To, to feed, to nourish our souls on the eternal word of God. I mean, we can't get this outside of Sunday mornings, outside of our regular times of gathering. There is literally nothing like it. It has authority over our lives. The, the more we grow in our knowledge of it, with our heads and our hearts, is how we grow. But the other way is this. We grow by seeing our experiences, including our suffering, in light of that word. The same author of this book is the same author of your life. He's the same author of uh, writing the, the good, the bad, the ugly experiences for your good in his glory. Um, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity today, <laughs> Mere Christianity, um, writes, writes this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drain pipes right, oh, sorry, he's getting the drains, drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, and you knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised, but presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building a quite different house than the one you thought of, throwing on a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into an, a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live, it, live in it himself. Man, 
I don't know about you, but I, I need to have my eyes in my mind set on things above, not on little cottages down here. Paul's joy is rooted in God's goal for them. And the fact that they had grown in the, in the gospel was evidence that God was accomplishing this goal. Lastly, Paul's joy is rooted in how that goal is realized. How that goal is realized. Look at verse 29. For this, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul worked hard. He worked tirelessly. But he did it by trusting in God's power to work. I toil and I struggle with all his energy. You know, there are plenty of times when I notice myself toiling and struggling with all my energy. Not his. Here are a few telltale signs. When I, when I notice myself toiling and struggling without much prayer. When I notice myself toiling and struggling, forgetting God's end game. When I notice myself forgetting my, my role as a servant called by God to love his people. When I notice myself forgetting my role as a steward, that everything, even my ministry, even this church for which I am toiling and struggling, ultimately belongs to him, not to me. You know, you can go for miles on that tank, on that one tank of gas, but eventually you run out. You realize that your, your own ambition, your own successes, are, are not the true source of joy. And in fact, they are the joy killers. So when I finally wake up, and I realize this for the umpteenth time, I discover God running down the road to me. In other words, I don't see a God wagging his finger at me Clucking his tongue. <laughs> Jesus said, no, no, no. Hear me. The Father is not like that. The Father is, is the one who comes running down the road to you. Picking up his robe. Picking up you. Hugging you. I hear him saying to me, Jamie, I'm not finished with you yet. My end game in you hasn't been realized. But the fact that you turn to me again is evidence of the work of my spirit in you. And that is the hope of glory. A glimpse of things to come. And it's then that I find my heart joined to Paul's. I rejoice in my sufferings, in my struggles, in my toiling for the good of others, for God's glory, in a very real sense, in times of suffering, we need to set our minds on things above. Not on things below. Not in this world. We were made with a, a 
God-given, God-sized appetite for joy, for delight, for gladness, for happiness. I believe that. Sometimes we have less than joyful experiences. And it's in those times, if we're really honest and really candid about how we're looking at those things, I think we, we look suspiciously at God as the joy killer instead of God as the joy giver. Paul's saying, no, no, no. <laughs> you, you have no idea how much God loves you. You have no idea how much God is working all things richly for your good, richly for his glory. In order to experience joy, our joy needs to be rooted in the truth of who we are in him. It needs to be rooted in the truth of, of God's end game for ourselves, for others. And it needs to be rooted in the truth that God accomplishes his end game through his power in us, not ours. So my hope is that we would See our need to be tethered. See our need to be glued to these truths in our quests for joy. Father, we, we all long for joy. We all long for satisfaction, for happiness. We all long for an end to the brokenness. We know you do too. But we all... Um, hunt around in a thousand ways in all the wrong places. I know I do. And I'm, I'm sure everyone in this room can think of some ways they do too. We all confess these ways and times. We've looked at you as, as the villain, as the joy killer, not the joy giver that you are. Uh, so thanks, thanks for this reminder of all you have done and all that you promised to do for us and ultimately all that you are. You are a great God. So I, I pray in the meantime that you would help us. Help us to be patient. Help us to trust in you. Trust in your word and cling to you for joy. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.